Good morning. Good to see everyone. Well, you know, life has been such an adventure for me lately. <laughs> it's quite astonishing, actually. You know, there was a time where I spent all day in a room in a basement <laughs> doing very mundane chores every day and really coming to peace with that, being really all that my life was going to be about. And uh, wow, has that changed. <laughs> wow, has that changed in so many, 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 many beautiful ways. I, uh, you really feel the limitations of just being a person, being a body when you try and express those kinds of things. You know, when you try and tell somebody how as ridiculous as this life seems, as crazy as spiritual life seems, especially in this day where the world is just assailing, you know, the simplicity of faith and the, and the efficacy of prayer and, and mocking uh, these old-fashioned ideas and these old-fashioned beliefs. You know, I hear that, and I've lived with those people, and I've shared those views, and I've walked in those shoes. I've lived that kind of life. And the pain that comes along with that kind of hopelessness and that kind of uh, loss of depth uh, to go beyond the material is, is incredible and, and, and so, so, so miserable in a mundane way and yet so undetected when you're living in the middle of it. You know, this relative world is a prison of iron bars that you can't even see and don't even know they exist. You know, the slavery that we endure in ourselves in this world is the worst kind because, because we're, we're slaves in love with our slavery, not even understanding, not even having a notion that we're slaves, not even, not even seeing it and settling for so, so little. And... Uh, <laughs> What a barrier a voice is, you know, what a limitation a mind is, how small a language is. When you try and express what is there, what's beyond that, what's deeper than that, what's more beautiful than that, what's more worth living for than that. You know, after I'd been in the monastery for uh, eight years or so, I hit a crisis point where, it, you know, I, I was over 40, <laughs> and going through that midlife crisis, you know, where you kind of recount your life. You take your dreams from when you were a younger man or woman, and you kind of interpolate them over and see what life has become. And you kind of come to that understanding that more life is behind you than in front of you, and that probably those big dreams that you put so much hope in weren't going to happen, and that your life was probably just going to be very mundane, very, very bureaucratic, <laughs> very limited. And, uh, you know, I was in the monastery and I was thinking about those things because my father actually had helped me think that way a little bit because he had asked me on the phone, you know, eight years in the monastery, I'd walked away from my career and from my education and all of that and all the things that had made them proud, you know, that had made them feel good about their son had made it and gone someplace and then I had thrown it all away and moved into a monastery of a foreign religion as far as they were concerned and a, an idolatrous religion as far as they were concerned and every time they called and asked what was going on with me I was washing dishes I was cleaning toilets I was weeding the garden I was sweeping the sidewalk and my father said to me he said when when are you going to become something when are you going to when are you going to teach when are you going to write when are you going to when are you going to do something and uh, you know I very boldly told him I said well you know dad I don't I don't get to make those decisions which was even worse for him. <laughs> you know, I, what, you're 45 years old. You can't make those decisions about your life. What's going on with you? And uh, I, I tried to explain to himself and, and to myself inside because that was hurting really bad. And I was telling him, uh, you know, I don't know, Dad. In, in this life, you're a teacher when, be, when, people become, when people come to you and ask questions. You're a teacher when you're living a life that's worth imparting or sharing. And if nobody's asking you those questions and if nobody's coming to you and wanting to hear your philosophies, you're not a teacher. 
no matter what you declare in yourself. And of course, he wasn't happy with that answer, and I wasn't real sure I was happy with that answer. And I went and I sat in the shrine, and I kind of had a crisis, because I thought, what if all of this isn't real? I mean, what if, what if I am just sitting here, you know, with pie in the sky, no God, and, or at least not a made-up one that's so sweet and loving toward me who thinks only nice things about me? <laughs> I trust. And... Uh, you know, I wondered, what, what is this about? What am I going to do? And I sat there and I thought about it. I thought, okay, well, well suppose, suppose the worst is there. Suppose the worst is true, that all of this is just inner feeling and, and emotionalism and, uh, uh, of course, a lot of renunciation in that also. But I thought, what am I living for? And if that's the case now and I go on with this life, what am I living for? And I thought, well, if that's the case, if there really is nothing, if it really is just a material experience in life, then, it, then it, it doesn't matter what I live for, <laughs> because when it's over, it's over, and uh, it's gone, you know. If I lived for money, if I lived for enjoyment, if I lived for accumulation, whatever, it wouldn't matter. And so I said, and I thought to myself, in a context where things don't matter, what's the best I could do? And I still thought to myself, this, this is still the best I could do. I'm living for an ideal. I'm living for something infinitely beautiful, for the expression of love, for the freedom of loving and caring and giving, and for turning myself into a perfect lover, you know, trying to train out my selfishness and my small-mindedness and to try and open that heart and to try and, and hurt enough to care for, for someone besides myself. And I thought, well, that's, that's cool. <laughs> that was a great relief to realize that and to think that even if none of this turned out to be true, this would still be the life I would choose to live. And then I thought, if it is true, well, you don't even need to think about it. If it is true, what an amazing thing I'm going to realize one day, that I'm one with everything and everyone, that I'm going to see in myself infinity and, uh, and immortality, and that I have always been something infinitely beautiful, infinitely strong, infinitely wise, uh, infinitely alive and present. And so this morning, that's how I'm here. Happy to be infinitely alive, <laughs> infinitely present, and to be embarking on a journey that has value irregardless of the reality or unreality of anything outside of mind, outside of self. There's a great poem here, of course, by Hafiz called, They Call You to Sing. He says, stones are longing to know what you know. If they had the graceful movement of your feet and your tongue, they would not stop laughing between their ecstatic dance steps and unbroken praise. Your heart beats inside a sacred drum, its skin tanned and stretched. Our skin, it's alive, it's stretched with the wild molecules of his wondrous existence. Your mind. Your eyes are an immense silk cloth upon which all of your thoughts and movements paint. Your soul once sat on an easel on my knee. For ages I have been sketching you with myriad shapes of sounds and light. Now awake, dear pilgrim, with your thousand swaying arms that need to caress the sky. Now awake, with your love for the friend and for his creation. Help this old tavern sweeper Hafiz to celebrate. No more enemies from this golden view. All who have entered this holy mountain cave have dropped their shields, dropped their swords. We all cook together around a fire of yearning music builds. We share our tools and instruments and plates. We are companions on this earth. As the sun and planets are in the sky, we are all sentries at our sacred humble posts. The stones, the stars, they envy the movements of your legs and your tongue, and they call to you to sing on their behalf. The atoms in your cells and limbs are full of wonderful talents. They dance in the hidden choir I conduct. Don't sleep tonight, dear pilgrim, so I can lead you on my white mare to his summer house. 
This love you have now of the truth will never forsake you. Your joys, your sufferings on this arduous path are lifting your worn veil like a rising stage curtain and will surely reveal your magnificent self so that you can guide this world like Hafiz in the hidden choir God and his friends will forever sing and conduct. How's that for a pie-in-the-sky, beautiful vision of being? May it be. I want to, actually, it's not that I wanted to talk about prayer this morning. Several people mentioned it, and oddly enough, down in North Carolina, where I go once a month, they also asked for the same lecture down there a couple of months ago, and I actually put one together, and uh, I thought I had given it here. <laughs> but I searched the website yesterday and went all the way back to June of last year, and I didn't give it. So I'm going to uh, share some of these thoughts this morning. The scriptures say that King Janaka, one of these characters in the uh, stories of Hinduism, he was a householder, a king, who realized God. And so every householder ever since has been chanting his name and pointing at him as their hope for realizing God in this life as, as someone in, involved in, in the world. And he did it. So it is, in fact, possible. You know, I always say to people that it's not, you don't have to be a monk to realize God. You don't have to be a householder to realize God, that there's two paths. And God has given you the one that works best for you in the situation that you're in. If you take advantage of it, if you're a monk and you don't live the, 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 the teachings of that life, you're not going to make, achieve the goal no matter what. If you're a householder and you don't buy into the principles and instructions for living that life properly, forget that. No matter how many times King Jonica did whatever he did. We have, to, we have to obey the instructions. We have to learn and shoot for the ideals that are appropriate to our path. And it says that King Janaka lived a householder's life only after attaining perfection through austerity and prayer. Austerity and prayer, which I thought was beautiful. Austerity in the sense that loving is, is austere. Giving up yourself for others is austere. The austerity in this, in this day and age is service. It's giving up and giving to others to the point of pain. If it doesn't cost you anything to give, you haven't given yet. You give when you have to give something you don't want to give, when you have to let go of something that you've saved for yourself. That's, that's where the austerity of life comes from. And so through that kind of loving, that kind of giving, and through prayer, King Janaka has reached the goal. Now, the master adds some gravy to that mashed potato when he says, let me assure you that a man can realize his inner self through sincere prayer. But to the extent that he has the desire to enjoy worldly objects, his vision of the self becomes obstructed. So this prayer is a very powerful tool. Takor says a couple of times in the gospel that, by prayer, that prayer is a path alone. By itself, God can be realized through this prayer. So what is this prayer? And what is this, this, this thing that can be obstructed by, by wanting to enjoy the world? You know, when you go inside and you find a certain place, a certain spring of love, I, I like to imagine it's, it's where that infinity of God, that unchanging Brahman, slips through a hole of, of <laughs> the material world and is just continually bubbling through this small thumb-sized hole in your heart that keeps you alive. It's, it's life energy. It's love itself, pure, distilled, you know, clean and fresh from the source. And it bubbles continually into your life. There's no limit to it. Though the hole may only be that big, it's got an infinite ocean behind it. And if you go into that quiet place in your mind and you find that beautiful spring where that life is coming from, the source of your mantra that you're chanting, the source of the love that you feel when you hold your grandchildren or when you hold your son or your daughter, the source of that, that feeling 
the, the first time you lifted your veil, the veil on your wife, you know, or that, 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 that awe that you feel the first time you saw the ocean, or just so vast, or the first time you saw the Himalayas, you just, wow. I remember in Mayavati when I was sitting there trying to find, they were pointing at the big Himalayan range that you can see from the lawn there, and I was looking, I couldn't see it. And I, <laughs> and I, <laughs> the funny thing was, is that all the white peaks that were there, my mind had interpreted them as clouds because they were much higher than any mountains I had seen. So I was looking below the clouds to try and see this mountain range out there. <laughs> and, and the awe that I felt the moment I realized that what I was, my mind was telling me was clouds was actually the snow on the peaks and that they were that big, even that far away. I was like, oh my God, that's, that's astounding. That kind of awe that comes alive inside when we see things that remind us of God in this world, that is in you. The mountain isn't giving you anything at that moment. The mountains are way over there, beside the fact that they don't often hand anything to anybody. <laughs> so what's happening is within you. When, when you looked at your lover for the first time, what, what did they give you? They gave you nothing. It was all within you. Something in you was being reflected, being awakened, being made obvious to you. In, in your experience of eating your favorite things, you know, I'm not going to bring up pizza. <laughs> eating your favorite things, that enjoyment, you know, it's coming from within you. The taste is just an opportunity. The person is just an opportunity. The mountain is just an opportunity. And with eyes that can see, like Jesus says, whenever he gives a parable, he says, if you have ears to hear, then hear. If you have eyes to see, then see. What he means is see it correctly. Understand that all of this infinity, all of this beauty, all of this wonder that you've assigned to a thousand different objects and names is you, is coming from inside you. Prayer is sitting in that place. Prayer is understanding that it needs no external opportunity to manifest. So why do we need these objects? Why, why are we running after them? What's, what's drawing us out, like they say? You see, a perfectly still lake makes no noise. Senses aren't attracted to things that don't make noise. Senses aren't moved by things that are unmoving. Senses aren't excited by stillness and by quiet and by solitude. But that's the nature of bliss. And that's why it sits in you so full and yet completely unnoticed. Because your senses, every time something moves, if you're sitting there looking at a scene and some little rabbit jumps in the peripheral of your vision over here, what's the first thing that happens? Boom. Your senses are on it immediately. Because they're not interested in this vast, quiet, unmoving thing over here, the sunset. They're interested in that rabbit jumping over there or the bird landing on the sand over there. No matter how beautiful the thing is they're looking at, if there's movement, you're going to go there. And see, that's the problem of the world. The world moves. It sparkles. It flashes. It makes sounds. It, it gives you highs and it gives you lows. It gives you all of this change. And that's so tantalizing to the world of the senses. They can't help. They'll be boom, 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 boom. There it is. And, and Takor is telling us here, that he says, but to the extent that he has the desire to enjoy this world, his vision of the self becomes obstructed because you won't notice it anymore. Even though you're sitting in an ocean of bliss, as soon as something moves in the senses, your attention is being right there. And you've forgotten all about that bliss. I'll share again, probably for the third time this week, this idea that a Swami shared over dinner in, in San Francisco. <laughs> uh, that um, He said, you know... I realized something the other day in one of my meditations, and when an, when an old Swami says something like that at the table, all the brahmacharis are like, really? <laughs> He's going to give us something from himself. He said, he said, you know, I was noticing that the fulfillment of desire, that when you fulfill us a desire, that joy that you feel, that, that wonderful peace, you know, uh, like that, that poem, Peace, that Swamiji wrote, where he says that after the fit of passion, you know, that, that, that after you've, you've had that fit of passion, that calm, that relaxed happiness and that fulfillment, the Swami said, he said, that's your nature. 
He said what happens is not that object or that, that action or that activity, whatever it was, didn't give that to you. What happened is that you fulfilled a desire and for a moment you didn't have another desire to replace it and that which is obvious became apparent to you. That bliss inside became apparent and you enjoyed it. But you associated it with the object or with the, the activity or the fulfillment of a desire. And so next time you're going to go running after that desire but that desire is only going to manifest what's sitting in you right now. Sri Nishagadatta Maharaj, that realized soul in, in uh, Bombay, the cigarette maker, <laughs> he, said, uh, he said, do you not realize that it's your quest for happiness alone that prevents you from being happy? Because the quest for happiness, you know, that's the running after the sparkles, that's the running after the movement, that's the taking the eye off of that bliss and looking for that excitement that's happening. And when you do that, you forget. And it's not until you take your eyes off of those other things that suddenly you sit in that place again and you realize, wow, God, that's beautiful. I'm at peace, I'm content, I'm full. The master was standing in a reservoir. I don't know why he was standing in a reservoir, but he was looking at all of the fish and the master said to M, look at the fish. Meditating on the formless God is like swimming joyfully like these fish in the ocean of bliss and consciousness. This is prayer. That's what prayer is. It's swimming in the ocean of bliss and consciousness. It's going inside of that, that, that little reservoir of the manifestation of God that's within you, that place that love springs from the place where intelligence springs from, the place where being uh, becomes possible. It's to swim in that place, to forget the senses, to forget your problems, forget the mind. Put aside all the things that are bubbling and sparkling and jumping and dancing and making all kinds of noise. Put them aside and swim in silence in this sea of love, in this sea of existence. That's what your meditation is supposed to be. That's what it's supposed to be for you. It's not a pounding effort of trying to take the anvil of will over the, the hammer of mantra and break some log open. You know, it's not, it's not this horrendous effort of heroic, I'm going to shut my mind up. <laughs> I'm going to have the best meditation I've ever had. It's not that. It's also not that woe of despair when you realize it's not happening. When you're sitting there like, whoa, God, my mind is all over the place. This is crazy. I'll never be a meditator. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I really, I tell you, it doesn't matter. The condition of the mind doesn't matter. Ignore it. Put it aside. Let it jump all over the place. That doesn't change the fact that this ocean exists within you. It doesn't change the fact that you are an image of God. That that Satchit Ananda is behind all of that noise. Let the noise be there, but don't identify with it. You're swimming beneath the waves. You're swimming in the ocean, underneath the turbulent surface where all those senses are splashing and crashing and abutting against rocks. So when you see the waves crashing, just go deeper. You don't have to stop them all. You don't have to still the ocean, just go deeper. Hear the source of the mantra. Let yourself relax into mother's arms. You step backwards into mother's arms in that, in that ocean. In the Bible, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Thessalonica. And he said to them, pray without ceasing. Don't ever stop swimming in that ocean of bliss. Don't, 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 don't ever come to the surface and get tossed around by the waves. Stay, stay under the surface. Stay deep. Carry that peace with you. We've talked before from the, the inspirations in the Kato Upanishad into understanding that, that this life that you're living is that prayer. You know, this prayer... Uh, Thomas Merton, I don't think I'm going to mention that later, maybe I might. <laughs> Thomas Merton writes a wonderful essay on uh, silent prayer. 
Uh, and he, he says that, he, he talks about reaching God through prayer, through con- contemplative prayer. And he says, at first, our, our prayer is very, very gross, very basic. God is out there, and we're here, and we have these things that we want or feel, and we're sharing it with God out there. And he says, so the beginning of prayer is the seven-year-old's kneeling by his bed, uh, you know, with his hands together like he's taught, and praying, God bless my mom and my dad and my cousin Heather and and my cousin Ronnie, who doesn't like me, and, you know, take care of everything, and I'm sorry that I hit my brother and pushed him under the bed. You know, that's, that's the, first, the first steps of prayer. And those first steps of prayer are important, right? Because it what? It helps you come to peace with who you are. It helps you grapple with who God is, you know, because there's a lot of times when you did push your brother under the bed, and he's still tied up under the bed, and you're in there praying to God. <laughs> And you're having to make peace with this thing somehow and kind of come to the understanding that, yes, God loves you just as much now as he did when your brother was free, you know, but that maybe you should go untie your brother anyway, you know, those kinds of things. And prayer helps you to wrestle with that. And that part of prayer is wonderful. That prayer, of, that part of prayer is delightful. You know, the world, the world may, may poo-poo it. I'm reading so many negative postings online, you know, after these horrible events that are happening in the news, you know, the politicians and, you know, people in pulpits are offering their prayers and thoughts. And, uh, you know, these, these, that's being ridiculed as, you know, that does nothing. That's not helping anybody. It's a stupid thing to do. It's not a stupid thing to do because it's an expression of wanting to do and wanting to be able to enact some level of caring that you can't, that you don't have access to. And so you put it out there, but it's a change within you to be conscious of somebody else's suffering. It's, it's a change in you to put your thought into somebody else's well-being because you will be changed over time. You know, religion gets, I'm not going to become the defender of religion, because most, mostly because I don't like religion <laughs> in that sense of religion. But I will say this, that, that it might be true you know, there, there might not be a whole lot in thoughts and prayers of somebody. But show me the institutions of service that don't have religion behind them. Show me the institutions that are feeding people, that are curing people, that are taking care of orphans, that are opening free schools, that are opening free uh, refuges. Show me those places that don't have religion behind them that don't have an ideal behind them. You know, there is a great deal of value in giving your thoughts and prayers because from thoughts and prayers and the effect that that has on us as individuals, hospitals come, orphanages come, schools come, soup kitchens come, clothing centers come. That's what comes from the impetus of thought and prayer within you because a thought and prayer in you will breed an action when something becomes available within your reach to do, to help, to see, and to give. In the complete works, Swamiji is asked, what is the efficacy of prayer? (laughs) Is it really stupid? Is it really a dumb thing? Swamiji says, by prayer, one's subtle powers are easily roused, and if consciously done, all desire may be fulfilled by it. But done unconsciously, one perhaps in ten is fulfilled. Such prayer, however, is selfish and should therefore be discarded. A prayer for for your desires is what he's talking about. But you see, he's saying there that if you become conscious of the fact that your life is a prayer, if you become conscious of the fact that everything you do is a prayer, it's a request for something in this world of God. Everything that you think, everything that you say is a prayer. Everything that you sit down and enjoy and listen to or taste is a prayer. If you come to that understanding and you begin to focus, to discipline those prayers, to to, to make those prayers more single and more solid in their request, instead of just this, you know, tossing it to the wind kind of living where you're just enjoying whatever comes along, you know, that that uh, you read in a magazine about a trip to Bahamas, and you're like, oh, no, I want to go to the Bahamas, you know? And then you turn over here, and you find out Google's got the new Pixel book. And say, oh, a new Pixel book, That's, I need that, you know? That kind of prayer is not going to get you anywhere. You're, you're, dis, you're, 
you're distributed too widely, you're, you're, you're unfocused. And most of us live that way, and that's why life, that's what ordinary, that's, <laughs> should I say that out loud? You know, that's probably why I'm not great. <laughs> that's probably why I'm not the superstar singer that I dreamed myself to be when I was 15, singing to my magic marker in the light of my desk lamp, you know. It's probably why it never happened, because I never focused on that. I never went and trained. I never sat and practiced singing all day long. I never, I never learned an instrument, you know, so that it became a part of my inner expression like that. You see what you see the thing is is that when you when you when you don't focus your prayers when you don't become aware that you're living a prayer that everything you do is a request when you don't understand that it just continues to fly out all over the place and your life stays very mundane on some scales mundane and you don't you get to 45 and you look around and you're like hmm god I, <laughs> I guess it's a cubicle for me <laughs> you know and you come to that place which is all right those things don't matter. We'll get into that in another lecture. But the thing about it is to understand, harness this prayer. That's what the call to austerity is. That's what the call to renunciation is. It's, to, it's, it's, it's that call to awareness so that you begin to see how you live. And you begin to pay attention to how you live. And you begin to pay attention to where your senses are leading you and what's tickling them and calling them. And it, it makes you aware of that infinity within that ocean of love that you have to give. And it begins to rouse that inner power, that inner subtle piece of love that you carry with you that you don't pay much attention to. And in that is infinite potential. And in that is infinite prayer. <coughs> so much so that like Thakur Ramakrishna tells this great story that when, when you've purified your heart to that extent, when you've got your focus set at that level where 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 your your decision to put your mind on something is is absolute things happen of their own accord that's why i tell people god has no will because if the idea occurs to god it already is because there is no stray hairs in god's will you know god god it's it's just isness for him because the moment it occurs in the mind of god it appears in the material world and Takor experienced that. Remember, he had an idea that he was going to build a fence around the Panchavati. Do you remember that story? I think it's in the gospel. He has this idea that he's going to build this privacy fence around his meditation place. And he says no sooner did he have that, that thought that, that one of the temple servants came running up from the uh, bank of the Ganga saying that this huge shipment of wood and nails and hammers and <laughs> rope had all just washed up on the shore all of the materials that were needed for building a fence around your place of meditation. That's, the, that's what, what Vivekananda is saying, that this infinite power, this subtle power will be roused within you through prayer, through your ability to focus, through your ability to discipline and harness your life, to, ma to manifest God, to manifest something beautiful. This inner shrine continues to grow. This little place inside at first at first, and, and at first I can mean by years, <laughs> you can sit there and, and, and feel nothing. You know, you might, you, you, your mother's kind usually in the first couple of years. I always tell people when they're first starting out, enjoy your first couple of years because <laughs> mother's more kind in the first couple of years of practice than she is in the decades beyond, you know. Those first couple of years, she'll give you a little tickle or a little flash of insight or a, a profound sense of peace or love or something like that. And once she's given you just enough to make you think that you've got it, she steps back and lets you do the work for 10 more years before she, <laughs> at least that's the way she's been with me anyway. So that's the thing is you have to go inside, sit in the shrine, not for something. We talked about that yesterday too, in, or Friday night in class. You don't go into your meditation to get something. You know, all our life we think that we've, we've, we've been trained to think that religion really is a means of getting stuff for later. <laughs> we're going to get heaven. We're going to get a good birth. We're going to get whatever. It's always, we're always going into it. We're going to get a calm mind. I'm going to realize God. We're always investing in something that's tomorrow. Nothing could be further and nothing could be more of a disadvantage to your practice than to think that way. <laughs> nothing could be more of a disadvantage because that has nothing to do with practice. And that has nothing to do with religion. 
nothing at all. That's just spiritual materialism. And it ain't going to get you there because God ain't going to be purchased. <laughs> you know, he isn't going to be purchased. No, the point of our practice is enjoyment in the purest sense. The point of our practice is to touch that infinite ocean so that the task at hand of loving the world is not impossible. So that the strength to, 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 to give every breath to caring and to, to nurturing and to encouraging and to holding up and to forgiving and to working through will never run out. Religion is sitting in peace. It's sitting in the enjoyment of the presence of God. Now that presence might be very faint at first, but it'll be there because you're here. You're in God. You've always been in the middle of God. You have always been swimming in that ocean. You have always been surrounded by Satchitananda. You have always been inundated with that bliss, with that peace, with that love, with that intelligence, with existence of being, the present moment. And you can touch that easily in material ways. As many, many kind of junior practices that are there for sitting in meditation, guided meditations, to help you touch for a moment the fact that you sit in this infinite ocean. That sitting there just, just feeling the fact that you're alive. It's listening to your breath and your heartbeat and starting to feel the heat in your body and feel the sensations of living. All of it amazing and beautiful and full of love. The master was telling a story about a, a, a Muslim, and he was smiling. He said, a Muslim, while saying his prayer, was shouting, Oh Allah! Oh Allah! And another person said to him, You're calling on Allah. That's all right. But why are you shouting like that? Don't you know that he hears the sound of the anklets of, on the feet of an ant? <laughs> you see, it's that notion. Initially, prayer starts that way. Yo! I'm over here, <laughs> you know, I'm one, or maybe you're hiding here, maybe, maybe like you're even, Adam and Eve in the garden where you're like hiding, you're like, no God, I'm not over here, <laughs> don't, don't look at me right now, you know, don't see what I'm doing, <laughs> what I've done, but either way, that that, that, that notion of God, that Taco or Ramakrishna, who seen, who saw God, walked with God, talked with God, you know, danced with God, partied with God, as it were, you know, that he said, God is so close, he hears the, the bells of an anklet on an ant. That's always, that's always, God is that close now, at this moment. Just sit and try for a moment to be aware of it. Don't convince yourself of anything, just stop the noise and see it. Just stop the noise and see it for a moment. When the mind is united with God, one sees him very near. One sees him in one's own heart. But you must remember one thing. The more you realize this unity, the farther your mind is withdrawn from worldly things. There he gives us all those clues again. When the mind is united with God, one sees him very near in one's own heart. So in Thomas Merton's essay that I was telling you about, we start with that conversation then we come to this realization that God is within. We've pulled back from the senses so that our world isn't so dominated by out there. And we've begun to have a sense of self that's a little bit more unmovable, a little, more, a little less shakable and disturbable. We get our peace from inside and not from circumstance, not from the conditions of the body and mind and the environment. We start walking with, with a divine energy, a divine sense in ourself. And we see that God is within. And our prayer becomes mental. We start sharing our day as we walk through the day because we're always praying. We've always been praying. We've just never paid attention to the prayer aspect of it. We start realizing that everything that we're thinking about is a prayer. And that we're always in the company of the beloved. And that he's always hearing it. Our thoughts, as we have them, she is experiencing and knowing. 
our feelings, our angers, our jealousies, our loves, our longings, our envies. She's feeling them before we feel them. It takes us a moment. We have to wait until they reflect in the mind before we even become aware of them. But Mother was aware of them when she emanated them. When she emanated them. And we understand that we're a reflection of Mother. You know, that we don't become aware of it until after the fact. And we live in that space of after the fact. But in that awareness of being that reflection and being in that company, watching the thought, you realize that you're watching a manifestation that's coming from divinity within. And that company becomes much more intimate. That discussion with God starts happening in half sentences because you realize you don't have to finish the sentence before she's heard. And then you wait for the response. But the reason that you become more separated from the world as this happens, as he says here, you must remember one thing. The more you realize this unity, the farther your mind is withdrawn from worldly things. Why? Because you stop paying attention to the jumping rabbit or to the landing bird. <laughs> and you keep your mind on this infinite ocean, the beautiful mountain range, the things that aren't moving, the things that aren't changing, the things that aren't dependent upon space and time. Something that you've always been and have always known becomes more and more apparent to you, more and more to the front of your awareness. And you start enjoying that. And you start seeing how much you give up when you run after the jumping bunny, <laughs> as it were. You realize what an expense it is to base your life on the shifting sands of conditions and environment and people and relationships and states of bank accounts and stock markets. You begin to realize how much you've given up depending on those things for your satisfaction and for your contentment. When all along you've carried the fullness of those contentments within yourself. Eckhart Tolle, when he had his realization moment, he said the biggest thing that he realized at that moment was that he saw so clearly that no matter what he added or did in this world, it could not add one feather's weight to anything that he already had. That he had that absolute peace and absolute bliss already within. Takur goes on, he says, when you begin to see God within, you will naturally see God without. You know, because you're sitting in him. And it will change everything that you see. And when you look at other people, you will immediately assume that they have that infinite ocean within them also. And the love and the inspiration that you feel in your space inside, the harmlessness that you feel in your being, you'll assume that of others. And so their stinging words won't sting so much because you know behind them is a harmless ocean like the one you carry but you didn't see it because you were so based on what they were saying for your happiness or your contentment or your self-image, but now you're not. So what they think of you isn't such a big deal. When they're anger, it doesn't seem quite as deep or quite as sharp because you're coming from a space of knowing what they are because you have finally found out what you are. Just then the master appeared, and coming to learn the cause of the fun that the devotees were having, he gently touched Naren and plunged him into deep samadhi. The touch produced a magic effect, and Narendra entered a new realm of consciousness. He saw the whole universe permeated by the divine spirit and returned home in a daze. While eating his meal, he felt the presence of Brahman in everything, in the food, and in himself too. While walking in the street, he saw the carriages, the horses, the crowd, and himself, as if they were all made of the same substance. After a few days, the intensity of the vision lessened to some extent, but still he could see the world only as a dream. And while strolling in a public park in Calcutta, he banged his head against the iron railing several times to see if they were real or a mere illusion of mind. Thus he got a glimpse of non-dualism. The fullest, the fullest realization of which was to come only later at the Kasipur Garden House. So you see when this inner shrine begins to consume you, when you begin to understand that your sense of self doesn't stop 
at the limits of your senses, at the limits of your body, when you realize that there is no outside inside, that there's only God, that this, that this, this ocean of love is infinite, not in a make-believe way, not in a way from the inside back, <laughs> but infinity means in every direction it's infinite. And it colors everything that you do. The way that you think, the way that you walk, the things that interest you, the things you want to talk about, the things you want to do with your life, the people you want to, to develop relationships with, the way that you want to help somebody, the way that you think of them when you help them. You know, when you see yourself helping yourself, that pride goes away. It becomes real service at that point. This inner prayer is, is your japa. The master says, yes, one attains God through japa. By repeating the name of God secretly and in solitude, one receives divine grace. Then comes his vision. Suppose there is a big piece of timber lying under the water and fastened to the land with a chain. By proceeding along the chain, link by link, you will at last touch the timber. That's a beautiful thing. You know, we've, I've mentioned, I've heard this many times in Vedanta, that, that your mantra is God. And your mantra, the name of God, if you don't have a mantra, you can just use a name of God, like love or Jesus or Buddha. Just repeating that, because it's the, it's, forms are indicated by their sounds. You know, that's the nature of the mind. And so by repeating that name, repeating that mantra over and over, it is God. You know, it's not just representative of God, it actually is God. And by repeating it, what do you do? Eventually your mind starts doing it by itself, right? You don't have to sit there and keep doing it. Eventually it starts doing it. And you're free to roam about. So where do you roam about? Walk around your mantra in your mind. Ask yourself some questions about it. So, mantra, you're God. What does that mean? <laughs> you don't look like God. You don't sound like God. What does it mean? Get curious about what's happening in that process. Where's it coming from? Where's the impetus for the sound happening? Where is the decision to, man to, 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 to manifest it coming from? Follow that chain. Each time it repeats, look under it. Where did you come from? Where did that sound happen? Where's this idea of God coming from? How is it that I know nothing of God and yet I'm following this and discovering something? What am I seeing? Because that chain leads where? It leads right to that little thumb-sized bubbling fountain of existence where your life is coming from within you. It leads right to that heart of love, to the ocean of love, to the infinite love that you've been promised that you have access to so that you can give it away freely. It leads to that peace, that ocean of immortality, that ocean of bliss that you get to sport in and to play in. That's where it comes from. God has not fallen into a ditch for me and you to help him out by building a hospital or something of that sort. He allows you to work. He allows you to exercise your muscles in this great gymnasium, Vivekananda says, not in order to help him, but that you may help yourself. Do you think even an ant will die for want of your help? Most errant blasphemy. The world does not need you at all. The world goes on, you are like a drop in an ocean. A leaf doesn't move. The wind does not blow without God. Blessed are we that are given the privilege of working for him, not of helping him. Cut out this word help from your mind. You cannot help. It is blasphemy. You are here yourself at his pleasure. Do you mean to say you help him? You worship. When you give a morsel of food to the dog, you worship the dog as God. God is in that dog. He is the dog. He is all and in all. We are allowed to worship him. <coughs> Stand in that reverent attitude.
to the whole universe, and then will come perfect non-attachment. This should be your duty. This is the proper attitude of work. This is the secret taught by karma yoga. This is why thoughts and prayers are beneficial. This is why becoming aware of that infinite ocean within you is your highest prayer, is the most, the most good that you could possibly do in the world. To realize God, to pray to the point where you understand that reality, to where you've done away with all of the distraction and the constant humming of the world and come to its source, touch it. Become that person that's known for always being cheerful. Be the person in the office that everybody comes to for help. Be the person whose mailbox is filled with a, a bundle. You remember Sam? <laughs> Sam Black? <laughs> he, he used to give away a lot of money to a lot of different organizations. I probably shouldn't say that out loud. I'm sorry, Sam. I've ruined all your punya. But... Uh, <laughs> In the sense that I was making a joke because he used to get stacks of junk mail. <laughs> you know, it's like once you give money to one organization, everybody's got your name, you know, and, and just one after the other after the other. Become that person. <laughs> Become that person that's not disappointed by that. Be different than me. <laughs> you know, be that person that looks through and looks like the opportunities. Oh, wow, I could give something to those folks. Oh, wait, but this is more. Oh, this one. Oh, Ma, which one? You know, I don't know which one. Be that kind of person, you know, the person that people come to because they know you as a source of love, of infinite love. Go to mother because you're not. <laughs> Go to mother because you can't help her. You can only worship. You can only see her in everyone. That's the only ability you have. And if you're not seeing her in everyone, you don't have the ability to do anything else. So get to work. <laughs> Begin seeing God and stop seeking him. Become aware of his presence in yourself so that you can finally unlock his presence in everyone and see it clearly in everybody that you talk to. That's the nature of prayer. It starts with a simple conversation. Have that conversation. It ends in unity. It ends in ecstasy. It ends in redemption for you and everyone that's near you. See God. Be with him. Assume his fullness and watch it manifest. Let's take a few moments to do that. <laughs> 